This is a Federal News Network podcast. One in four State Department embassies and other facilities are, in the department's own estimation, in terrible shape. In fact, the maintenance backlog stands at about $3 billion. The number of facilities is growing faster than the budget. So, is there a way out? For some possible answers, we turn to two auditors at the Government Accountability Office. Katrina Latham is Acting Director for Physical Infrastructure, and Jason Baer is Director for International Affairs and Trade Issues. They discuss some of their findings on State Department facilities with Tom Tennant. For your listeners' context a little bit here, I think most of them can imagine in their minds at least what a U.S. embassy is like overseas. But just for context, that only accounts for about 300 of the facilities that we really are looking at. But the State Department actually has a portfolio of more than 8,500 facilities and properties all across the world. And so, you know, yes, that's the iconic embassy that many people would think of. But it's also things like ambassadors' residences and staff housing and warehouses and recreational facilities. It's all a broad manner of things that the State Department owns and maintains overseas. And so I think the bottom line that we were seeing is that the State Department needs to do a much better job of paying attention to planning and budgeting for maintaining those facilities overseas. As you mentioned in your overview, the number of facilities really is outpacing the funding that they have in order to do maintenance. And we saw a couple of key drivers in terms of the growth of the State Department's overseas portfolio. You know, one is that since the bombings in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, the State Department has built a lot of new embassies to try to get our people in safer, more secure facilities. And when they're building these new embassies, they tend to be larger than the ones that they were replacing because they're built to last for five decades or so, and they assume a certain amount of growth. For example, one of the things that we talk about in the report was in Kosovo, we replaced 91,000 square feet with 125,000 square feet new facility. With respect to this maintenance backlog and this 25% of facilities that are below par or some of them are falling apart, does that include some of those facilities built under the construction program that now dates back about 20 years. Yeah, it includes a combination of both. And in general, as with, you know, houses that people own and things like that, newer facilities are typically in better condition. But what we're finding is that as some of those first round of kind of new embassies are getting older and older, 15 to 20 years old, they're having issues with many of their major maintenance systems their operational systems, air conditioning, heating, ventilation, things like that, just like people would in a house. Sure. And one of the statistics in your study shows that the deferred maintenance grew by a factor, if I did my math right, by 30 in the couple of last two fiscal years, two, three billion dollars. How did that happen? How did it grow so fast? I think Katina looked really closely at that one. You want to talk about that a little, Katina? Oh, yes, sure. I mean, as you noted, the bank's backlog grew from $96 million in 2019 to $3 billion in 2020. And there were several things that attributed to that growth. First and foremost, they used an older methodology for the past data that relied on survey of facility managers. So that data wasn't quite complete. And for the 2020 data that we presented, the $3 billion, the new methodology included supplemental surveys. So they did some modeling to estimate the maintenance needs for the key building systems. So that just meant that they had a much larger backlog than they knew about until they put in this new methodology. They need a plan in place and budget for how to address this backlog. 
We're speaking with Katina Latham. She's acting director of physical infrastructure issues and with Jason Baer, director for international affairs and trade issues at the GAO. Give us an example, because we've talked on the show with State Department about some of the shiny, wonderful new projects they're doing, like the new overhaul and uh, addition of buildings in New Delhi. But what are some of the problems that stand out in particular that might be seen by the publics of the nations where the State Department is hosted? I would just point out one great example, the embassy in Manila, the Philippines. It dates back to 1940. You know, they have problems with their roof, with their air conditioning, with plumbing, electrical. And because it's built in a coastal site, it's subject to flooding on occasion. These are all major problems for how they have to address the maintenance. Katina? Yes, I would certainly add to that, as Jason pointed out. Really, the older the buildings, the more historic the properties, like some that are in Rome, also, too, have the issues with pipes and breaks and leaky windows. So those just some of the examples that we saw with some of the buildings. And I looked at a chart in this report, and it showed that the ambassadorial residences as a group of types of structures seem to be in the worst shape, or the most of them are in bad shape. And that's really rough on the diplomatic corps, though, isn't it? Yeah, you're exactly right. What we found was that more than half of the ambassadorial residences are actually in poor condition. And why that's important is because these ambassadorial residences really serve a couple of purposes. Obviously, they're the home for the chief U.S. diplomat in the country, but they also serve a really important representational purpose. It's a place for ambassadors to convene people from across the country and and spark dialogue and have great conversations and host events to celebrate democracy and, and all the wonderful things that U.S. diplomats do overseas. I think an example of this that really stuck out for us was You know, we found out the ambassador's residence in Nairobi, Kenya, dates back to 1934. And its kitchen was in total disrepair to the point where they were using it to store furniture. And so as a result, the residence hasn't even been occupied since 2019. So not only do we lose the ability to use that facility, we now have to lease a new place for the ambassador to live. Yeah, so that's almost as bad from a diplomatic standpoint as serving bad American wine or something from a strange state. All right, so what are your recommendations here? How can state get out of this? They've got $3 billion in needs they don't have in funding, and they've got 25% of their facilities in poor condition. What are you recommending here? Oh, yes, I can certainly respond to the recommendations from the report. We recommended that state develop a plan and specify the funding that's needed to address this backlog that we identified. We also recommended that they use predictive modeling to effectively analyze their potential resource investment. And then also, too, to use mission-critical information to help them target their maintenance for investment. So these were three of the total five recommendations that we gave state departments. It seems like they need a system to be on top of maintenance. That is to say, you don't replace a roof when it starts leaking, but roofs have life cycles. There's a thousand consultants that can look at a building and tell you what you're going to need next and when you're going to need it. And so it seems like they need to do some proactive planning and budgeting before things fall apart. It's fair to say? You know, we certainly think that they need to do a better job of being proactive about these things and staying on top of them. Because as we all know with our houses, If you allow a little problem like a leaky roof, which wouldn't cost much to repair, you allow that to go on for a little while and you defer maintenance on that, you end up with bigger, much more expensive problems. And how did the State Department take the recommendations? I would imagine they agreed with these ones. Yes, they agreed to implement the recommendations. Admittedly, these are things that are going to take a little time and they're going to take trade-offs, you know, to figure out exactly what the right next steps are, especially as compared with the embassy construction program but we're confident that they're going to make progress. 
And I guess you've probably answered this in one way or another, but you mentioned in the report the idea of managing deferred maintenance backlogs, which kind of sounds ironic, but there is a methodology that's accepted for doing that. And you said state mostly does a good job of managing the deferred maintenance backlogs. What does that actually mean? So they have a methodology they have in place to determine the conditions for their property. And these conditions are the formula they use that includes both the repair needs and whatever replacement costs would be for that. And so once they do this formula, they put a term or they deem what's an acceptable condition. And so for now, that has state has said anything that's above 70% is that acceptable position. But that's 70% of what would be considered poor. And they have poor and good as, as part of these areas. And so that's the formula that they put in place to determine um, what would need to have maintenance, what's in poor condition. And we noted in our report that over a quarter of these properties were in poor conditions. But when you exclude properties that have been in place for just the past 20 years, that's over 50% of the properties that are in poor condition. So just further stressing the point that state needs to address their deferred maintenance costs. And overall, to point out the examples that we put in place uh, or noted earlier that the more you delay these problems, Katina Latham is Acting Director for Physical Infrastructure, and Jason Baer is Director for International Affairs and Trade Issues, both at the Government Accountability Office. We'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm. I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, 
I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day and I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, 
folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.